Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a library, yeah. No, my haere mai, kia ora. Welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge. This is your host, Alison, and I'm joined in the lounge today by the lovely Karen. Kia ora, Karen. Kia ora, Alison. It's so good to have you here in this lovely, cosy lounge. Oh, isn't it? Yeah. It's I mean, it's not, isn't it good to have you here? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, but isn't it, it is. good for me also to be here? <laughs> so, look, in today's lounge, we're going to talk to you about what we've been reading and what's on our TBR lists, because our TBR. Uh, to be read lists. Well, I know mine just gets longer and longer. And um, we might have time for a, a hot tip uh, for getting more out of your reading with Auckland Libraries. So I'm wondering if I could start because I've got a well, great. Why not? Yeah, why not? Um, that was very polite because I have just read the most amazing book. Yeah, I, I could tell see you, about you. I could see an aura. Yes. <laughs> I could see you vibrating in your chair ready to take off. Yeah. Sort of like me in my car this morning when I put the car in low instead of yes. <laughs> in drive and took well, off to come here. So I'm in overdrive with this right. one because it's a New Zealand novel recently published called Fake Baby by an Auckland writer, Amy McDade. I absolutely love this book. Now, it's set in Auckland um, and it's a really sharp satire. Uh, it's so tender and funny and sad but I was sort of thinking about it I'm not quite sure if it's tragedy or a comedy we could probably discuss that and like uh, life like, like life yeah itself. like life yeah absolutely and it's about resilience and and being real yeah and real life so it's set over a period of nine days and it follows three different characters who are all sort of living precarious lives which I guess is real, isn't it? Or at times our lives, which might be sort of so ordinary, I guess are really precarious at times. Aren't or they? if not at times, could be at any time be become precarious. I think that's the thing to keep in mind. Isn't yeah, it? that we're only one step away. Step away from, yeah, from. Don't say the abyss. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's right. So, it, um, so the three different people you've got a, a pharmacist, a bereaved parent and um, a guy who's a, a real drifter and is, is struggling with his reality and everything about it is so relatable and so real she um amy writes about what it's like to be in hospital for example to to have a baby to have a baby who becomes very ill um e even to have the jehovah's witnesses knock at your door at the most inopportune moment which often seems to happen and she writes a lot about the instagram generation too you know that sort of thing i don't know whether you've had it but if you go out with someone for lunch and they spend most of the time taking selfies and well, nobody I go to lunch with does yeah. that, Alison, but I have seen it happening at other tables. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, and... Um, Do you really go out with people who spend all their time oh, taking photos of their lunch? Not really, but <laughs> but I sort of, I can imagine it. Maybe I don't, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. I'm just thinking perhaps of the younger generation in my family that would, would do that. Um, but it's so, she's so... 
sharp as an observer and very clever about different suburbs in Auckland too. So anyone who, who knows Auckland will know, will really relate to some of the things she says about perhaps, um, for example, Titirangi, which is actually where she lives. But she's got some funny observations about the people there that act as though they're bohemians and that sort of thing, but are actually so well off that they're secret National Party voters. <laughs> and, you know, so there's really funny, funny bits, but it's terribly sad as well. Absolutely loved it. Now, um, Amy, uh, interesting point about Amy. Um, she's got a Master of Creative Writing from Auckland University. Um, so as well as being a writer, she's also a newborn intensive care nurse too. So I don't know how she would manage to do both things. But Well, it sounds like one sort of feeds the other. It sounds like the, her work is giving her the material... Yes. At least for this book, maybe not for her next book. She might step further afield for her next book. Yeah, she might. Yeah, you can really see that with because um, her writing is so clear. And even when the pharmacist makes a terrible error with his drug calculations, you can sort of see, oh yes, you're a you're an intensive care nurse. But man, what a good writer! So highly recommended. It does seem to be something, haven't there been a, a few books over the last few years that have been huge runaway successes of written by doctors in the intensive care ward, you remember? And yes. the, um, um There was another one from Starship, wasn't there? There, there was, Anyways. yes. Oh. <clears throat> and um, Dr. David Geller. David Geller, exactly, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yes, I just, I suppose because they're seeing life and... And they're seeing life at its most raw, I guess, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's also just that we, these, this, that type of um, profession, I'm going to call it not a job, it's a profession, um, in the sense, in the best sense of the word profession, not because that's higher class, but because of the fact that it means you have a vocation for it. It's a vocation, I should say, probably. Um, it's, a, it's something that really speaks to everybody because, um, as we were saying, it's something, you know, you're one step away from finding yourself there and you feel you're in the hands of others. So to hear directly from one of those people who has their hands on the operations that are occurring daily in these places, in these very particular places, I think is something that really appeals to people. Yeah, yeah. You know, questions of life and death. Yes. People are always curious about questions about life and death. All of us, yes, yeah. Now, um, you were reading, telling me something about a a book to do with diagnoses, weren't you? Was I? Yes. (laughs) I hope you're not calling How to Be Autistic a book about diagnosis. Oh, Oh, it is. Well, it is. It is. is. No, you're right. So this wonderful book, yeah, I did mention it as we were driving over, um, what I had on my TBR table that I, well, no, not TBR, currently reading. Um, and actually, How to Be Autistic by Charlotte Amelia Poe is um, not one of my currently reading. It's my currently recently read. Oh, and yes. Because I couldn't be currently reading it because I read it in one sitting. I oh. sat down, I opened it, and I did not stop till I got to the end. Um, it's really, really great book. And it does. So, um, so this book, Charlotte Amelia Poe, is what um, wrote this book after she is an autistic person who won a prize against all odds and against everything she'd ever thought could happen. She won a major art prize with a video that she made with her own webcam, and it was called How to Be Autistic. And after it won this, as I said, major prize where she went to the Saatchi Gallery and, you know... Um, what would you call that? A, a, um, on the calendar of the most important people of the VIPs, mm-hmm. um, premiation. 
Is that a word, premiation, when you win a prize? <laughs> prize giving. Yes. <laughs> a, a VIP sure. prize giving mm-hmm. attendance. And, um, and that gave her the confidence to actually write this book where she just said, I'm just going to pour everything into it that I know. Um, and it was about, you're right, it was about helping people who either had just had the diagnosis or had not had a diagnosis uh, about um, what to inspire them with what they can be. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was what she said. It was like all the things that she'd been wanting to say. And she had a very difficult time finding her way. She was diagnosed very late, as she points out. If you're not a cis, white, male, and you are yeah. autistic, you get diagnosed generally very, very late, although this is changing. And um, and so she wrote this wonderful book that is so, I think the, really, the point there is, as she says, it's, it's everything that was in her heart. So it's very raw and very genuine it just pours out and so you can read it anyone can read it because it's not tailored to an audience that's the thing you can write for an audience she was writing for an audience it's not me karen but when it's that genuine and that real um any audience can read it yeah and oh it sounds so good and it's that authentic voice isn't it and yeah, it's not tailored. From, she hasn't. Yes. Did I already say that? <laughs> I think that was the word that I that I that I think really sums it up. She's not tailored the story for any one audience, and so it's a it's a very universal um, read. Or I don't know, it was universal for me. Yeah. I I just thought it was absolutely wonderful, and it's funny. This is the other thing because oh, God, you can't. Helpful. A book will never get full votes on my list if it doesn't have something Some, funny in it yeah doesn't have, oh. if the author is not able to find the funny things as well yeah because that that helps doesn't as it? you were saying what were you saying life death no what were you saying about life tragedy or comedy yes, there, there that's you go. Right. Yeah. and they often they cross over a bit i mean as shakespeare i was just gonna it. say just yes. like shakespeare yeah. exactly yeah 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 oh cool well something completely different that i've just read just finished i loved it but i was in the mood for a bit of um Oh, now I can't say the word espionage. You know, um, I just all of a sudden forgot how to say espionage, but now I've said it. Now, so What's the word? Yeah, um, es- oh, espionage. espionage. You know, I didn't es- even get what it was. Oh, right. I just all of a sudden felt worried that I wouldn't be able to say it, but I said it, so that's good. You wouldn't so, be able to say it, pronounce say it, it pro- correctly. Yes, yes, I, I might say it as another word but I don't know why I did that but anyway so I was just in the mood for some espionage um, and I'd heard this author Tom Bradby being interviewed um, about his work because he's a UK journalist and foreign correspondent and so he's written this new book called Secret Service and um, so it's British it's set um, amongst the MI6 not the MI5 and um it's uh, the MI5 being the one that when I was um, not seen, when James Bond had not yet been made into movies and I was only reading about M. Oh, yes. What is it? So it's M1, it's MI5, I-5. Military Intelligence 5, yes. and I always thought it was M15. Oh, M15. That sounds like a motorway. M15 and M16. Yes. It, until I saw a James Bond movie where somebody said it out loud. Oh, how would you know? Growing up in California, whoever talked about MI5? Yes, the M15 would be a freeway, wouldn't yes. it? Like yeah. the I... The I- no, no but also the motorways in England, aren't they all yes, M something? M's, yes. yeah, the Ring Road and the M something. The yeah. M, yeah, so anyway, MI, MI6. And um, this is sort of one of those ones where 
art kind of imitates life because um, the gist of the story goes that the British PM um, steps down suddenly and then the, the ruling party have to quickly... Is this, did Boris Johnson resign? Oh, did I no. miss something? Yeah, no, I'm thinking <laughs> the one before. Oh, you know, right. Yes. <laughs> yes, the wishful thinking, Karen. Um, yeah, and so suddenly the ruling party have to find a replacement. But the MI6, this um, woman agent called Kate, becomes aware that the next PM might be a Russian spy. So then there's a mad scramble to try and work out what's going on. Um, and so as well as having to save the world, you know, or save the the world from this um, Russian spy, she's also having to deal with two teenagers, her marriage, which is a bit flaky, understandably, and um, her elderly mother who's sliding into dementia. So, Did you mean her marriage was shaky? Perhaps, oh, more perhaps than I flaky. Say, yes, I suppose. Flaky, I'm going, well, how, how is that? It was uh, <laughs> Yes, I suppose flaky, flaky could be a good thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I should have probably said shaky. But I, I think my marriage would probably be a bit shaky if I had all of that to deal with too. Oh, I think my marriage has often been shaky, yes. even without having all of that. I think it's a part of all marriages. It probably is, yeah. So this Def- is... Um, do not, never trust a marriage that doesn't have its shaky moments. Oh, yeah. You know when they say things like, we never had an argument. Yeah. We're married for 80 years. Yeah. Never had a crossed word sort of thing. Yeah, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, so um, betrayals, double agents, secret operations. Oh, I'm talking about the book, not my marriage. Right. Yeah, and things that go terribly wrong. Um, so it's really quite full of our political fears that are, are really current. So it's um, it's a great one. I think if you like John le Carré or Stella Remington, you'll really like this one. In fact, I think it's better than, than Stella Remington. So, oh, that's a recommendation. Oh, well, I'm a John Le Carre fan, and not a Stella Remington. Not, I've never tried. I have no no pronunciation on Stella, but um, yeah, if it's in the in the lines, because the thing about John Carre, John Le Carre, that I really like is the fact that he's actually a great prosist. He's it's oh, a yes. beautiful writing style. Yeah. So, would you say that's true about? Yes, I would. Your man, what's his name again? Um, Tom Bradby. Tom, Tom Brad. Bradby. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Tom so, Bradley was the mayor of oh, Los Angeles. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you yes, knew that. I did, yeah. Uh, yeah, so where? what else was on your So, list? well, I brought in um, a wonderful book that actually I suggested the library purchase, which is called A Stranger's Pose by a Nigerian writer named Emmanuel Iduma. And this was a book that I, cho- I wanted to read because Teju Cole wrote the forward for the book. So Teju Hole is a writer and photographer whose work I so admire and um, and just his whole personality and who he is is really um, I recommend following him on Instagram, anyone who's on Instagram. Just a real generous human being and um, he, so he wrote about this book generously, calling it a ballad with all the lyrics remembered. And this came from a great story which was, uh, this is in the foreword that I, was the reason why asked for the book to be purchased and um, it's uh, he tells the story of this saxophonist this jazz saxophonist who played ballads particularly incomparably well and so one time he was playing and he just stopped in the middle of the song and they asked him what had happened and he said oh I forgot the lyrics 
even though he was playing the saxophone. Yes. Is, Ooh, is that not a wonderful line? I forgot is, the lyrics. And so yeah. this book is a ballad in the sense that it's a book about places. It is not travel writing. So as the cover sums it up, it says it redefines travel writing. It's not travel writing. It's a book about places and the people in that place. It's a bit like Bruce Chatwin and like Teju Cole. So it's fragments. It's not put together to be one defining story. It's got meditations it's got poetry and i think it's a great book as um remember that time recently when we were talking about pillow books the books that are good for taking with you to bed oh yes yeah so it's a perfect pillow book because the point of the pillow book was it had to be a bridge between daily life which was very sharp and full of facts and then dream life which was cloudy and that's what this is so that's highly recommended fabulous i wouldn't mind reading that i'm glad the library I think, bought it too. yeah i just i think nigeria is a place that's just so it's a place i'd really like to go it's just really a hotbed of um so many talented people are coming yes. out of that country and it's just i just want to see where it's going i want to yeah. live long enough to see to where say, it's going yes. yeah. with all of africa the african continent yeah, yeah. if we ever get to be able to travel again but yeah no totally agree on that yeah oh cool well then um another one i was, I was telling you um a bit earlier that one that i haven't quite finished yet it's a big it's a chunky book um and it's um called faber and faber the untold story by one of the younger fabers toby toby faber so it's um of course as we know faber and faber are the that publishing giant who published so many of the great 20th century poets and and writers um i'm really loving this but it's a it's a big read it's sort of more um an archive i guess of original documents so like letters and f- memos and some of them quite funny too board minutes etc which um, toby would have had access to being one yes, of the family being one of the family i guess yes so it's a really rich resource but um it tells the story really of the beginnings and the the middle of of the faber and faber story and because uh, T.S. Eliot was one of the directors. Yeah, I didn't actually realize that he was one of the directors because uh, I remember this story about he started there. I'm sure if he became, if he was a director, he became a director later because I remember yeah. at the beginning he was just a guy sitting at a desk reading manuscripts and writing blurbs because I remember they said that he was um, really good at writing blurbs. It was one of the things his colleagues appreciated about him was his ability with a good blurb. And then there were those famous manuscripts that he turned down. Yes. What was the one? Um, so he turned down, even though they said he was a good talent spot. He made some errors and he turned down so george orwell right uh animal, animal farm. farm yeah yeah that was, i then, was thinking it was in 1984 you're right animal farm yeah and the other one that uh down and out in paris and london he turned down that as well and then apparently he was he hesitated about james joyce's ulysses and so during that time of hesitation they lost it they lost it to a brave woman who did not hesitate yes that's right <laughs> oh that sounds like a good slogan for a t-shirt yeah a brave woman will not hesitate so i guess that happens in the publishing world doesn't it you take a punch i guess on some and yeah others well, you think oh this will never make it you know t.s Eliot's personality i always think of that famous thing that um 
Virginia Woolf said about him where she was, I can't remember who the letter, she was quite biting. She's actually quite, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even about dear friends, she had quite a, uh, a tongue. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. And she said, um, oh, Tom, you know, they all call him Tom. Tom, in the Bloomsbury group, Tom is coming over to lunch in his four-piece suit. <laughs> yes. All this sort of stuff she didn't. Do people get that anymore? Do they know that three-piece suits were what men used to wear in those days? Yes. Did you get it? I did. Oh, you did. Yes, you didn't laugh. Oh, because yeah, <laughs> I was kind of thinking. I didn't laugh because I was thinking ahead, and some of the things she didn't. It's almost like what she's not saying made it so sharp. Yes. Well, writing. this is the famous thing about Virginia Woolf's writing. You know, it's the famous. The I can't remember who it was who pointed out that scene in the book where she's writing about the the dead of the First World War, and she's actually describing a moth dying in a candle flame. Mm, but mm. if you read it you know yeah yes yeah she we could do a whole show on on virginia Woolf, yeah. couldn't we yeah so um oh and i'll just go back to one one of the quotes in it in the book was they were so sort of understated and funny so one of the elder faber um people directors um and this was right at the beginning of the 20th century I guess and he said so and I just imagine the accent if you want to make a small fortune in publishing make sure you start with a large fortune (laughs) and I thought that was classic and it's kind of it shows that nothing really changes does it it's a terribly risky industry to be in but um, they've yeah so what a great company though but mm, so um, would this be a book that's just like totally readable even though it's stuffed so full of archival material yes I am finding it readable but you can dip in and out of it right um, I don't know that it's one that you'd read cover to cover. cover to cover and you wouldn't read it in one sitting. It's So depending it's on your huge. taste, you could read only the gossipy parts or yes. only the um, directional parts or yes. only the inspirational parts. Or only the eight board minutes of the AGM and that sort of thing. But yes, it's got some good gossip, you know, gossipy bits as well, which I guess may give it a bit of a flavour too. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's a good one. How are we doing for time? Yeah. Now, I think we've, yeah, actually, we've got a bit of time to do your, um, you're between the, are you up to between, between the, the covers? Bo- between the covers, <laughs> yes. So, yes. between the covers, oh, I do have yes. one last currently reading, which is, again, I, I wanted to bring this now also because it's relevant. I read this book first in 2015 when it came out, or maybe it was 2016, probably it was 2016, but um, I've been rereading it because of Black Lives Matter, because yeah. it's really, I think it's a seminal text, if you want to understand Black Lives Matter, and it's Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. So, it has two books. It has this and The Beautiful Struggle. I've read them both. This was another that, well, I'm, I'm saying I read them both as if that makes me, mm. <laughs> so I should be praised for that. He's such a good writer that when you yes. read one, you've got to read the other. It was not because of any particular gift of mine. But um, this one here, Between the World and Me, is written in the form of a of a address, a conversation. He's speaking to his teenage son mm. about growing up black in America. And he's just so, so it's the same thing. It's written so, it's so genuine. He's the famous one. I'm going to use that word again on our show. Mm. I'm going to say he was the one that when they interviewed him about writing memoir, he said, to write a good memoir, you cannot fucking lie. Yeah. And and yeah. this is the thing. So the book is so true that even though it's not being addressed to me, I read it and I was just, you know, absolutely enchanted. 
an enchanted is probably not the word, a gog. I was mm-hmm. a gog. Um, so he basically what this book taught me and what everybody can learn about reading this book is that what he says, race is the child of racism, not the father. Oh, yes. So first there was the need of some people to be on the top. And then they went looking for people to be on the bottom. Since if you want to be on the top, you have to be above other people. Yeah. And it was so, it's such a simple concept, but I had never encountered it said so clearly. Yeah, I think he introduced me to that concept of race being a a construct. A construct, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't grow up knowing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? But so true. Yeah, and I think this is the point, you know, when he he talks about how, um, you know, racism, so it's, uh, it's something that you absolutely have to... Uh, start from the bottom. You have to examine everything. You can't look. There's a lot of confusion, uh, and this is coming out. Something came out. Another thing I was reading recently in Black Lives Matter, the confusing um, prejudice or bigotry with racism and saying, well, I'm not prejudiced, so therefore I'm not a racist. But anyone who lives in a racist society and is not attempting to understand it and dismantle it, actually you're part of it, so you are racist, is the point. And you're part of, um, especially having white privilege, you're benefiting from racism, aren't you? We're benefiting from the yeah. racist society yeah. that we Can, live in. Have I got time to tell a little anecdote about Saul Bellow? Oh, yes. Oh, do yeah. I do? Yeah. Great. Okay. So, um, Saul Bellow, I had actually read this once and he brings it out in the book and he was able to provide me with an answer to this. So, Saul Bellow, um, American Nobel Prize winner of the old white male canon, um, had, had, made, had written this famous, um, or said in an interview, this famous question, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? If you find me the Tolstoy of the Zulus, I'll read him. Yeah. And oh, God, that makes me uncomfortable. Oh, well, uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> Outraged. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so he, you know, and he said, Ta-Nehisi Coates says, I really need an answer to this because he was a young man who was actually trying to make his way in, in this uh, in the society that we live in where the canon is these old white males and he yeah. felt that to compete, not to compete, he doesn't he's against competition <laughs> sorry, compete is not the right word, to, to be um, to know what he needed to know to operate as the person he wanted to be, he needed to know this canon, he was calling it his trophy case he thought that mm. he needed to have like as a baggage this trophy case and then he came and wanted to live by these kinds of standards that someone like Saul Bellow would appreciate and so he found this essay by someone named Ralph Wiley and Ralph Wiley said I've got it written here because it's my favorite anecdote of the book, Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus unless you find a prophet in fencing off universal properties of mankind into exclusive tribal ownership and and so and Ta-Nehisi Coates says my great error was not that I had accepted someone else's dream but that I had accepted the fact of dreams the need for escape and the invention of racecraft isn't that so wow. wonderful? Yes. Yeah. And the invention of it. Yeah. That it, yeah. And, and Saul Bellow fits exactly into that category that I was saying about racist. So you say, was Saul Bellow racist? Saul Bellow would have certainly thought he did. He, there's a, you know, he's, he, it's on record. You can look it up. You can Google it. His defense of why it was not racist, what he said. He was just talking about preliterate societies and mm. it wasn't racist at all. I'm sure that Saul Bellow was not personally prejudiced or bigoted, but he was definitely racist. I'm, I'm going to say that. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to put it out there. Yeah. Oh, good on you. Yes. Cause I had wondered, I asked you earlier today, I said, do you think Saul Bellow was a racist? But no, good on you. And yeah. 
And I think we just have yeah. to say it. Well, we? I when you asked me that earlier when we were on our yes. way over, and I said, well, I don't know. And then yeah. <laughs> thinking about it now, I think that, yes, I think it's important. This is what Black Lives Matter is all about. Yeah. It's important to call this out, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, thank good on you. That's that's great. I, that's a book I want to read as well. So oh, thanks for bringing it. Oh, such a great read. He's just yeah. like, um, so, um, so he says, shall I? give you one more oh, yes, i've got this little do. pink post-it yes my experience in this world has been that the people who believe themselves to be white are obsessed with the politics of personal exoneration and the word racist to them conjures if not a tobacco spitting oaf then something just as fantastic an orc a troll or a gorgon i'm sure that mm. was true of Saul Bellow. you know yes. i'm sure that that's what he thought a racist was but yes. it's actually it's all the person it. you see next to you in the supermarket sighing about the exaggerations or about the you know the the points to which people have been pushed by this uncomfortable movement yes yes and who aren't prepared to be uncomfortable that's right yeah and want to stay in their comfort so wow like all great books a thought provoker yes oh that's wonderful i think it might just about have time for a TBR. Do your TBR. To, yes, I've got to be only about 30 seconds though. Oh no! But, um, <laughs> um, I've, there's been rave um, or real buzz about the new book by um, Otessa Moshfei, um, the American young, youngish author called Death in Her Hands. Um, now she's um, the, the writer that um, perhaps best known for My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Um, so I can't wait to read this it's it's they say that it's going to be a great one yeah i read eileen yeah i thought it was good i didn't think it was going to be her best i could see that she was on her way up so that'll be a great read yes can't wait for that um look i don't even have time for my hot tip well my hot tip is keep reading (laughs) yes we'll come back to that some other day but look um just a reminder that um the books mentioned today are going to be in our show notes so and you know where to find those um that's a hot tip that oh yeah that is a hot tip yeah that's our standard hot tip for the day and um this has been lovely thanks for coming to the lounge today karen um wasn't very loungy i was quite wrapped up wasn't i (laughs) so look happy reading kakite ano program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day, every day.